The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Ridiculous investigations indeed. This is Thursday, February 7th, 2019. Thank you for supporting this independent news by patronizing my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. It was the most divisive call for unity ever delivered. With the government reopened, at least for another week or so, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi had finally allowed Donald Trump to deliver his State of the Union speech to a joint session of Congress. It would be a call for unity, we were told, by the White House and by TV anchors afraid of losing the rest of their conservative viewers. But unity to Trump appears to mean unifying behind him and his wall and his desire to end what he and other Republicans view as ridiculous partisan investigations. This was possibly the biggest lie of the night since criminal and counterintelligence evidence is neither ridiculous nor partisan. Evidence is neither Republican nor Democrat, conservative or liberal. It's a fingerprint or a bloodstain or a document. Evidence is not political, nor is it ridiculous. Perhaps a catchy slogan would persuade the nation's law enforcement and House committees to back off and persuade the nation's voters that lives and 401ks are at stake if investigations persist. A slogan that rhymes, maybe, one that people might remember. If there's going to be peace and legislation, there cannot be war and investigation, he chimed proudly, hoping it would stick. Unfortunately for the president, a slogan isn't evidence, and a slogan won't hold up in court. The latest in that investigation is just moments away. While soaking up the pomp and circumstance he loves, the grand ceremony Nancy Pelosi had finally let him have, Trump found himself in a weird situation. On one hand, it was an extremely rare occasion in which he was surrounded by more Democrats than Republicans, with their savvy and powerful leader seated immediately over his left shoulder. Democratic members of Congress padded the gallery with labor leaders, climate scientists, gun violence victims, and federal workers who'd gone 35 days without pay. They brought some of the undocumented workers recently fired from Trump's golf clubs, a sampling of Trump's victims. And all the Democratic women now serving in Congress wore white and sat together to show what a formidable coalition they make. Among those women are three who will compete to run against Trump in 2020. Kamala Harris, the beleaguered Elizabeth Warren, and, as of Sunday, Amy Klobuchar. Cory Booker and Bernie Sanders were in the audience as well. So it was an odd circumstance in which the president found himself to have so many Democrats in the room as he launched his 2020 campaign. It is now officially a campaign aimed at unifying Republicans and conservatives and unifying voters against, as he portrayed them, wealthy socialist Democrats who don't care about stopping the murderous immigrants flooding the border and who are willing to overturn a glorious economy over some politically motivated investigation. If Trump was trying to unify the nation, it was with fear. Year after year, he warned, countless Americans are murdered by criminal, illegal aliens. Actually, there is a count, and it's much, much lower than the number killed by American citizens with rapid-fire guns. But Trump's message is about fear, not facts. He said undocumented residents are stealing our jobs and our pay raises and draining our wallets for education and health care. His ominous words insisted that, quote, large organized caravans are on the march to the United States. He exaggerates. Many of those headed for the U.S. have decided to stay in a more hospitable Mexico. Uh, but on the march was a nice touch if your goal is to instill fear. He warned of the MS-13 gang members again and sex trafficking and the tens of thousands of Americans who die from drugs smuggled across our southern border. He again failed to mention the vast majority of those drugs come through our ports of entry and official border crossings and airports and shipping docks around the country not driven wildly across the border like he saw in that movie. He repeated his lie about El Paso having been one of the most dangerous cities in the country, now made safer because of a wall. El Paso doesn't have a wall. It has a fence. And it has always been a safe city, according to prosecutors and lawmakers who've lived there all their lives. It was never one of the most dangerous cities in the U.S. What little crime exists in El Paso has been statistically unaffected by the fence 
which is located two miles north of the border. But the lies didn't stop at the border. Trump claimed the U.S. economy is growing almost twice as fast today as when he took office and that we are, quote, considered far and away the hottest economy anywhere in the world. The truth is, China, India, Poland, and Latvia had economic growth last year that was nearly double that of the U.S., and our economy actually slowed in the fourth quarter of 2018 and slowed even more in the first month of this year. His claims of the number of jobs created was exaggerated by about a million. His claim of the fastest job growth in decades should have read the fastest since August. And adjusting for inflation, wage growth has been about half of what he claimed. We are not yet an exporter, a net exporter of energy, as he had claimed. And his claim that more people are working now than at any time in our history was misleading, since we also have more people. Trump also threw more lies into an already muddled abortion debate, again firing up his base and firing up Democrats to push back, an unusual way to call for unity. He claimed a new state law in New York would, quote, allow a baby to be ripped from the mother's womb moments from birth. In truth, the law would only allow for an abortion after 24 weeks if the fetus is not viable or if the mother's health is at risk. Trump claimed, quote, the governor of Virginia stated he would execute a baby after birth, end quote. Despite Ralph Northam's terrible handling of that and other matters, Virginia's governor said no such thing. He said he supported a bill that would ease restrictions on late-term abortions, allowing women to consult with a doctor about it up to, but not including, the time of birth. But in the 2020 Trump campaign, the theme is fear, not fact. Trump's unity speech indicated that he would not give an inch on building his wall, that he would ban the rare and widely misunderstood late-term abortion, and that Democrats are wealthy socialists who don't give a damn about you. These were campaign platforms conservatives could get behind as Trump launched his 2020 campaign in this week's State of the Union speech. And it was even more grand than descending a long escalator. All of this unity from a president whose various efforts over these past three years are under criminal and counterintelligence scrutiny, a president investigated by the FBI for possibly being, willingly or not, an agent of our fiercest adversary, Russia. What we eventually learned from those timid TV anchors touting Trump's supposed unity theme was that just hours before, they had witnessed the real Donald Trump. At a private off-the-record lunch with TV anchors earlier that day, Trump had called Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer a nasty son of a bitch, former Vice President Joe Biden dumb, Elizabeth Warren Pocahontas again, and revealed he's still haunted by the ghost of the late Republican senator and war hero John McCain, telling the TV boys that McCain's book bombed. He still hasn't gotten over the late senator's thumbs-down vote that stopped his attempt to kill Obamacare. It still haunts him. This was the Donald Trump who would launch his 2020 campaign under the cover of a State of the Union TV spectacular and on a theme, as those anchors would tell us, a theme of unity. I believe the time has come to bring that investigation to an end, said Richard Nixon, in his 1974 State of the Union speech. Less than eight months later, Nixon resigned in disgrace as a result of that investigation. Less than eight months after calling for an end to the Watergate investigation, Nixon was gone. Early on, the president said that if the Mueller investigation reached into his family or his finances, it would likely be grounds to fire the special counsel investigating him and Russia. But he cannot so easily fire the investigators in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York. And they are looking into Trump's private company, known as the Trump Organization, currently run by his sons Eric and Don Jr. That investigation's actually been underway since last year, but it made news Tuesday when CNN learned those federal prosecutors have been arranging interviews with executives of the Trump Organization. The feds have crossed a red line that wasn't drawn for them. But they are investigating apparent campaign finance violations by Trump Organization executives in reimbursing Michael Cohen for the hush money he paid to women who said they'd had sex with Trump while he was married to his third and current wife. The feds have Michael Cohen to thank for these leads in this case ever since he flipped to testify against the president, and they are grateful also for the help they're getting from the Trump Organization's former chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg, 
who is also cooperating with prosecutors. A president whose campaign, transition, and presidency are already being investigated by the FBI and the Special Counsel for Apparent Domestic and Counterintelligence Crimes now also finds his inauguration ceremony under criminal investigation. Under a broad subpoena from the Government Corruption Unit of the Southern District of New York, federal prosecutors have expanded their investigation of the Trump inauguration, and that investigation began last year. Monday's subpoena demanded Trump's inaugural committee turn over all its documents about donors, finances, and other activities, which it has, so far as we can tell. The subpoena demanded a list of all the invited guests and all the parties that donated and where that money came from, a list of vendors and contractors and favors granted, and more. The committee that had produced an inaugural half as spectacular as Obama's had raised more than twice as much money as Obama's, $107 million. Investigators will quickly see, going over those documents, the actual sources of that money and to whom it was given and what the donors got in return in terms of favors and promises. Investigators are reportedly looking for evidence of money laundering, possible false statements, and election fraud. Repeating for emphasis, election fraud and conspiracy against the United States. Robert Mueller, meanwhile, may have already looked for signs of foreign money being part of that $107 million. He's already looking at foreign money that may have funneled through the NRA. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says Democrats will not be cowed by Trump's demands that they stop the investigations they've barely started. In fact, just yesterday... The new House Intelligence Committee, now under Democratic control, relaunched the investigation that Republicans left unfinished under their control. The investigation into Russian interference, possible collusion by the Trump campaign, whether Trump or anyone close to him had been compromised by Russia, whether any favors have been granted to Russia as a result of that cooperation and obstruction of justice. No, the Democrats will not cow to Trump's demands that they stop the investigation. And they plan to do all they can to help special counsel Robert Mueller in his investigation of these same things. Also yesterday, the House Intelligence Committee voted to send all the transcripts it's got to the special counsel, and it has a lot of them. Robert Mueller will now be able to see and to possibly prove whether anyone on a long list of House intel witnesses has lied to Congress, a serious federal felony. Among the testimony to be examined, names you know. Jared Kushner, Steve Bannon, Hope Hicks, Corey Lewandowski. The list goes on. Ridiculous investigations indeed. The investigations from which we have been distracted by State of the Union drama and the bizarre political drama playing out in Virginia, those investigations continue to close in on the president. And with various cracks forming in Trump's congressional support, Republicans on Capitol Hill may not be able to save him. Trump loyal Senator Chuck Grassley has now presented a bill that would require that the Mueller report be made public. Also this past week, one of the biggest contributors to the 2016 Trump campaign was the National Rifle Association with a personal best of $30 million. That was a year after an NRA delegation traveled to Russia, mostly on Russia's dime, to talk bullets and watch ballet. The person who arranged that trip is Russian redhead Maria Butina who, as a Kremlin spy, thought it would be a good way for her to infiltrate the NRA. Her conservative American boyfriend organized the trip she had arranged. He, by the way, has just been indicted by the feds of 11 counts of fraud and money laundering. It was, after all, Butina's mission for the Kremlin here in the U.S. to infiltrate conservative political groups and to use their power to influence American politics and ultimately American government. The NRA was a big fish in that pond. And Maria Butina has flipped, for now, from her loyalty to Russia to answer investigators' questions truthfully to try to save her own skin. And ever since she flipped, the investigations into that trip have heated up. The 2015 NRA trip to Russia is being or has been targeted by at least four investigations. Not one, two, or three investigations of the NRA, but four. House committees, newly controlled by Democrats, are, as Robert Mueller has done, looking to see how much money the NRA got from Russia before it made a record-breaking donation to the Trump campaign. Under intense investigative heat, the NRA is now trying to distance itself from that Russia trip, saying NRA Chief Wayne LaPierre was against the idea all along, 
and that the NRA only reimbursed some of the travel expenses. It wasn't an official NRA trip, they explained. All of this is being investigated by the Federal Election Commission and by the House Intelligence Committee, which is turning everything it's got over to Robert Mueller. The NRA is the target of investigations in two committees in the Republican-controlled Senate. And along the way, the NRA has been losing its political grip. It's also losing money, increasingly, to lawyers as the investigation closes in, including those from blue states whose attorneys general are looking into how the NRA makes its money. There have been cutbacks and layoffs. The NRA has claimed in court it is facing a financial crisis. Democrats plan to use the NRA's newfound weakness to push common-sense gun laws that even Trump might sign. Now under Democratic control, the House Judiciary Committee held a hearing yesterday to discuss the prevention of gun violence. It was the first judiciary hearing on that subject in eight years. The first since the mass gun slaughters in those eight years. 58 killed in Las Vegas, 49 in Orlando, 26 in a Texas church, 26 at Sandy Hook, 17 at a Florida high school, 14 in San Bernardino, 12 at the Washington Naval Yard, and 12 in Orlando. Republicans controlled the House for six of eight of those years and did nothing. With those lawmakers pushed aside for Democrats, the hearings are on again. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and the newly elected progressive Democrats have vowed to act on gun reform now, boldly and decisively. If you wanted to see more nature packed into one place than anywhere else in the U.S., you would go to the lower Rio Grande Valley in South Texas to visit the Tomalipan Thorn Scrub Forest. Its subtropical ecosystem is, according to a local biologist, the most diverse in the country. Well over a thousand kinds of plants, more than 500 kinds of birds, with nearly 200 other vertebrate species of animals. It's the American bird watcher's mecca and the home of the National Butterfly Center. So many people go there to watch the birds and the butterflies in two of the valley's wildlife refuges that it supports more than 6,000 tourism jobs in South Texas. Farming, home building, and the commercial development that comes with that had whittled away 95% of this forest in the past 95 years. But we still have that 5%. Except... Now the bulldozers are coming through, not for the wall Trump wants to build, but for an extension of an existing wall that was approved last year. The bulldozers will cut a swath 150 feet wide or so through that amazing little ecosystem located two miles north of the actual border, the Rio Grande River. And the part of the refuges that are north of the Mexican border but south of the wall will be cut off from American access. The trails would be cut off there and in the Benson State Park that draws 45,000 visitors a year, nearly half of them not locals. A $463 million a year tourism industry is at stake in an already poor community where the per capita income is just over $12,000 a year. In all likelihood, birds and butterflies and 1,100 kinds of plants are at stake. And the clock is ticking. Construction on this particular wall starts next month. Like all things Trump, the country is divided two-thirds to one. Only a third of us think declaring a national emergency is a fine way to get a border wall. Two-thirds of us, according to a new CBS News poll, do not think the president should use the broad financial and military powers he has under the National Emergencies Act to build a wall. Republicans in Congress are still hurting from Trump's government shutdown over a wall, and a lot of Republicans in Congress also don't want an officially declared national emergency. Senate leader Mitch McConnell is among them, and he's made that clear to Trump by warning him about what will likely happen next. First, McConnell believes there would be powerful political blowback that will further hurt Trump and other Republicans in the 2020 elections. Second, he's afraid of what Nancy Pelosi might do over in the House. Under the National Emergencies Act, Pelosi can get a majority vote to terminate the emergency declaration. That termination forces a vote in the divided Senate, which it must take inside of five weeks, and the termination of Trump's emergency order would probably pass the Senate as well as the House. That would force the president to veto the termination, which would force Congress to override his veto, which it appears it would. And if the Senate uses one of a couple of ways to try to avoid taking the vote, It'll actually be greenlighting an emergency declaration it does not want. 
If Nancy Pelosi does the expected and forces that vote in the Senate, Republicans would then have to go on record publicly either for this concocted emergency or against the president they have served so faithfully thus far. Many Republicans worry that if Trump gets his way with this, a future president along the lines of, say, uh, Kamala Harris might impose an emergency for one of their political goals, radical liberal stuff like universal health care. Trump had left himself with three options, all of them bad. Give up on the wall, which he's made clear he won't do. Shut down the government again, knowing he'll get the blame again. Or declare an emergency that will put a crack in the Republican Senate, an opening into which Nancy Pelosi can drive a wedge. Going into his State of the Union speech, the president said he thought there was a good chance he'd declare an emergency. But because he's likely to declare an emergency, Trump's also likely to see that declaration overturned, further weakening his presidency. He's not likely to take that very well. Under an emergency declaration, it would be up to the defense secretary to direct the military's construction of Trump's wall. Interestingly, we don't have one of those. Certainly not one that's been confirmed by the Senate. What we have is acting Defense Secretary Pat Shanahan. The Wall Street Journal reports Trump is satisfied with his acting cabinet members because they are, quoting a source, more beholden to the Oval Office. Even congressional Republicans are speaking up, saying Trump has way too many unfilled positions and too many acting cabinet members. The third-ranking job in the Interior Department has been vacant for nearly a year. Under the unconfirmed acting defense secretary, the Pentagon sending an additional 3,800 troops to the border for stringing coiled razor wire fencing and to conduct mobile surveillance. That brings the number of U.S. troops at the southern border to 4,350. Having military troops at the border since October has so far cost the American taxpayers $235 million. Fueled by Fox and Friends and misread numbers, Trump continues to spread falsehoods about immigrants and crime. And he continues to paint himself into corners. Donald Trump doesn't like to read, so he did not read the annual report by the intelligence community on the various threats to U.S. security. He only knew what he'd seen on TV and then lashed out as his own security chiefs, the ones hired by him, lashed out at them as being passive, naive, and wrong, and that, quote, intelligence should go back to school. He then called in his intelligence chiefs and came away convinced they were on the same page as him and that their Senate testimony had been distorted by the press. But their report still contradicts the president's views and policies on ISIS, Iran, and North Korea. I would suggest you read the complete testimony from Tuesday, tweeted the president, who hadn't read it himself. He simply let his intel chiefs talk him down by then. They said it was fake news, which frankly didn't surprise me, said Trump to reporters, claiming they were totally misquoted, taken out of context. Except there's video of what had been said by the directors of the CIA, the FBI, and national intelligence. Later, Trump said he disagreed with certain things the intel chiefs had said. I think I'm right, said Trump, adding, but time will prove me right, probably. Senate Intelligence Committee Democratic Vice Chair Virginia's Mark Warner noted this is the same president who stood on stage in Helsinki and told the world he believed Vladimir Putin over his own intelligence leaders. The top Republican on that committee disagrees with Trump about being smarter than the intel chiefs. Committee Chairman Richard Burr told CNN he has, quote, ultimate faith in the intelligence community. I think we need to trust their judgment, said a Republican senator from South Dakota. In their report, the intel chiefs were saying Trump is wrong about a crisis at the border, wrong about Iran's compliance with a nuclear treaty, wrong about North Korea no longer being a nuclear threat, wrong when he says ISIS is defeated in Syria, and wrong to pull out of Afghanistan without planning for the consequences. Trump's approach to foreign policy defies the long-standing image of Republicans being the grown-ups when it comes to world affairs and our nation's security. While they let the rest of Trump's behavior slide, Republicans in Congress are not shy about pushing back on many of Trump's foreign policy moves, from dropping Russian sanctions to his half-baked withdrawals of troops in Afghanistan and Syria, and especially to his dissing of NATO and our top intelligence officials. Republicans have pushed back on all of those things, and they may be willing to resist Trump on other matters. And as if the approaching investigation of special counsel Robert Mueller and a house full of Democrats isn't trouble enough for Trump, 
He's now pushing away his previously faithful Republicans in Congress, the ones he would need to protect him from impeachment. Trump lost more Republican support with his decision to pull U.S. troops out of Syria and Afghanistan. Led by Mitch McConnell, the Republican-led Senate overwhelmingly voted to rebuke the president, warning that the terror threats in Syria and Afghanistan present a threat to the United States and its allies. ISIS and al-Qaeda have yet to be defeated, McConnell said, contradicting Trump. And most of the no votes came from lawmakers who think we should pull out, but only once there's a plan to deal with the consequences, a plan the president does not have. Among the consequences, CBS News got hold of a Pentagon report that says ISIS could reorganize in Syria within six months without a U.S. presence. As for Afghanistan, some Republicans and some Democrats voted with the president, believing 17 years in a war is long enough. But the Senate majority, led by Trump's own Republicans, had voted to scold him for what he was about to do, hoping it would discourage him from doing it. Trump says he would prevent a resurgence of ISIS by keeping an eye on Syria and Iran from Iraq, where the U.S. military has a base and 5,000 troops. But Iraq doesn't like that idea, saying the U.S. is there to fight ISIS in Iraq, and if it turns its back on Iraq to watch Syria and Iran... It can take its work elsewhere. Trump overturns painstaking democracy with a tweet. And all of this plays straight into the hands of our greatest adversary, Russia. Syria's friend, Vladimir Putin, has to be pleased, as he must be with so much of what Trump has done. Throwing shade on NATO, our intelligence community, our Justice Department, our free press, and especially Trump's revival of the Cold War. Yes, the nuclear arms race is on again. And this time it's not just the U.S. and Russia. This time it's the U.S., Russia, and China. China is compelled to join a nuclear arms race that's been set back into motion by Trump's decision to pull out of a treaty signed 32 years ago by Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev during the Cold War. Trump said he was pulling the U.S. out of the deal because Russia was violating it anyway. And while that may be true, pulling out of the deal means the U.S. will now compete with Russia in a race. And Russia shares with China a desire to unseat the U.S. as the premier world power, two against one. In the meantime, there's concern that other arms treaties could fall by the wayside because of this, and that the door has been opened wider for the spread of nuclear weapons around the world. And this will only further encourage North Korea. In interviews over the weekend with the New York Times and CBS News, Trump made it clear he is willing to send American troops to Venezuela to help unseat that country's president, Nicolas Maduro, who ate an elaborate meal prepared by a celebrity chef while his people were starving. Maduro began another six-year term a month ago following a sham election with a low voter turnout after which one of his enemies died from a fall from a balcony. The U.S. and other countries are supporting Venezuela's opposition leader, and Trump's leaving open the option of sending American troops to help install him. Quoting Trump, it's an option. Maduro, by the way, has the backing of Russia and China. Salon.com's Bob Seska believes the dark cloud of this week's State of the Union speech may have a silver lining. Bob? Thanks, Buzz. For those of you too young to remember, Eddie Haskell was a character on the old Leave it to Beaver show. He was an adolescent pal of Wally, Beaver's older brother, and he was an unapologetic dick who routinely bullied the Beave. But when Wally's and Beaver's parents were home, Eddie would snap into behaving like an unrelenting kiss-ass, effusively complimenting Mrs. Cleaver and pretending to be the perfect kid. Beaver's reaction was pure bewilderment and frustration. Indeed, Eddie was gaslighting Beaver so that if Beaver ever mentioned Eddie's bad behavior to his parents they'd be more likely to give Eddie the benefit of the doubt. Knowing a two-faced jag-off like Eddie is nothing but a curse. And after watching Tuesday night's State of the Union, we all know how Beaver must have felt. Donald Trump's address was pure Eddie Haskell, cloaking himself in a phony baloney sense of dignity while hiding behind the sad and inspiring stories of his various human shields in the gallery, inadvertently lending their heroism to a man who's the exact opposite of a hero, a man who's feeding off their stories to solve his insecurities and to mask his political liabilities. Trump knew that thousands of casual observers of politics, maybe even some first-timers, would be tuning in. 
So he pretended to give a shit about niceties he never adopts on a day-to-day basis. Specifically, Trump is the most caustic, unstable, divisive, and unapologetically nasty chief executive to ever be installed into the White House. Yet there he was, quietly telling Congress that he's interested in things like cooperation and oneness, while eschewing toxic things like revenge. You and I have watched in horror every damn day as Trump screeches poisonous slag into the atmosphere, whether on Twitter or via his rallies. But tell me if you recognize the sweaty, bloated monster we all know in these sentences from the State of the Union. Quote, Millions of our fellow citizens are watching us now, gathered in this great chamber, hoping that we will govern not as two parties, but as one nation. The agenda I will lay out this evening is not a Republican agenda or a Democrat agenda. It is the agenda of the American people. But we must reject the politics of revenge, resistance, and retribution, and embrace the boundless potential of cooperation, compromise, and the common good. Unquote. God damn it, Eddie, is that you? Donald Trump invented the politics of revenge, resistance, and retribution. He daily embraces the exact opposite of cooperation, compromise, and the common good. Crying Chuck, Danang Dick, Pocahontas, and low IQ Maxine would likely agree that Trump only cares about owning the libs while enriching his bank account through Russian influence and obvious criminal fraud. His politics are aimed squarely at pandering to his red hats, with zero interest in helping anyone outside of the dwindling ranks of the 40%. If he were really interested in working with the Democrats in a spirit of cooperation, maybe he shouldn't refer to the Democratic agenda as the Democrat agenda, as he did in the speech, borrowing a well-worn pejorative originally launched to strip the Democratic Party, actual name, of its linkage with democracy or democratic values. If he were really interested in reaching out, he wouldn't have described oversight into his criminal enterprises as, quote, ridiculous investigations. But the gaslighting continued throughout the show, most glaringly when he honored various World War II veterans and Holocaust survivors in attendance, wrapping himself in the heroism of people whose selflessness and resilience is otherwise foreign to a whining ghoul like Trump. The gaslighting was thicker than the Aquanet helmet on his pumpkin-sized noggin, especially given how he's welcomed the support of white supremacists and neo-Nazis as part of his base, most shockingly after the August 2017 turmoil in Charlottesville, when he called the fascists in attendance there, including a Nazi terrorist who plowed into a crowd murdering Heather Heyer, very fine people. And yet the casual observers of the State of the Union probably forgot about all that, And Trump was counting on their short attention spans and the hyperkinetic news cycle to shield him from accountability, like always. Consequently, this lying skin bag of trans fats was able to trick 82% of independents and 30% of Democrats, the ones who watched, of course, into accepting his parade of gaslighting and lies as, instead, both presidential and acceptable. This is exactly how despots rise to power, by employing trickery and patriotic bromides that effectively shut down the ability of average citizens to see the truth. Now more than ever, the attention spans of everyday citizens are so irreparably scattered that they too quickly forget the horror show that just happened days, if not hours earlier. They forget that out of the last 10 years of economic growth, eight of those years were helmed by Barack Obama. They forget how the current president deliberately shut down the government for more than a month and gained zero new ground or concessions as a result. They forget all of the insults and obnoxious Nuremberg rallies before crowds of white-faced, brainwashed disciples. They forget the obstruction of justice and the conspiracy to hijack the 2016 election. They forget all of it in the face of a reality television show host who pledges to deliver cooperation, compromise, and the common good. Until, that is... He starts tweeting again. It's a miracle we're not all suffering from nervous breakdowns, given the wild disparities and brutal hypocrisies during the State of the Union alone, much less how the man who said Mexicans are rapists and who condemned the innocent Central Park Five to death in a full-page newspaper ad suddenly himself condemns the racism of Ralph Northam, or how the man who defended Roy Moore and whose paid-off porn stars that admitted to grabbing women condemned Al Franken. The only way out of this is to simply wait for justice to prevail while making sure he doesn't get reelected next year. 
Justice doesn't care about the gaslighting. Justice doesn't care if he makes us all feel like we're losing our spadoinkle. Justice will have its way with Donald Trump and all of Trump's accomplices. And then the entire world will know the truth about Trump. It can't happen soon enough. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of Bob with a subscription at patreon.com slash Show or Tuesdays and Thursdays at realmnetwork.com. He'll have a fresh edition this afternoon. I join Bob on his show every Tuesday. Being president of the United States is a full-time job. Today, packed with reading reports, talking with advisors, signing documents, and negotiating with congressional leaders. Unless you're Donald Trump. If you're Trump, you spend well under half your day doing those things, reserving the rest of your day for what the White House calls executive time. The current leader of the free world gets up before 6 a.m. and immediately switches on Fox and Friends and starts tweeting. From 6 to 8 a.m. is personal time before the president heads down to the Oval Office for the first of at least three more free periods he'll have during the day. The White House presidential schedule for Wednesday, November 7th, for example, gave Trump agendaless executive time from 8 to 11 a.m., during which he watched more TV, thumbed out more tweets, talked on the phone with his supporters, and roamed the West Wing. By 11 a.m., he was finally ready to start work, chatting with whoever's White House chief of staff at the moment. These days, Budget Director Mick Mulvaney is the acting chief, meeting with Trump late mornings and early evenings, with Trump's son-in-law Jared Kushner covering the hours in between. By 11.30 a.m., it was executive time again. Thirty minutes later, it was time to take another break, a time for executive time in the Oval Office for more TV, more tweets, more calls, and more roaming. After that grueling hour, it was lunchtime in the president's private dining room from 12.30 to 1.30. Then... Back to executive time with more TV, more calls, more tweets, more wandering about until dinner when it was back to personal time that often lasts late into the night with still more TV, phone calls, and more tweets. The next day, November 8th, was much busier with meetings at the Supreme Court and back at the White House with the Secretary of State and, separately, his top aides. But on that same day, the phrase executive time appears five times on the president's schedule for a total of five hours, plus a lunch hour and a 15-minute video recording session. George W. Bush was down to the Oval Office by 6.45 a.m. after reading the newspapers as opposed to watching Fox and Friends. W. remained in the Oval till 5.30 or 6 in the evening, broke for dinner, and was back in the treaty room by 7.30 to read his briefing materials until 9. Then it was off to bed for more reading. One aide says Trump will read his briefing, quote, but only if you talk and guide him through it as he's reading, end quote. And although he liked to watch sports on his personal time, George W. Bush never watched TV in the West Wing at all. Barack Obama was nearly that disciplined. Insiders saying Obama stayed up sometimes until 2 a.m. to read an activity for which Trump has little patience. Although no president's schedule can compare to Trump's, the modern president whose schedule was most like his was Bill Clinton. But Clinton's day started with structure, including intelligence briefings, a chore that Trump avoids whenever possible. And every hour of Clinton's was full, according to his first chief of staff. This president doesn't read, doesn't believe in structure, and spends 60% of his working hours not working in executive time. I prefer to come to work each day and just see what develops, said Trump in his ghost-written book, The Art of the Deal. Trump says it makes for a more creative environment that way. White House insiders say the West Wing is now as freewheeling or chaotic as it was in the first two weeks of his presidency. A study of Trump's time allotments between November 7th and February 1st showed that he spent 77 hours in official meetings, 38 hours at official events, and nearly 300 hours in so-called executive time. Insiders say Trump does have meetings inside those executive blocks of time, but those meetings are private and unscheduled because he prefers that others on the staff not know about those meetings. We know these things, the president's schedule, such as it is, and how it compares to those of other presidents, thanks to the reporters at the news website Axios. And Axios was given Trump's schedule by at least one person inside the White House who thought we ought to know 
how this president spends his time. There are two important takeaways from that revelation. One, that the man elected and paid to be the nation's chief executive puts in less than half a day's work on average. And two, that some people in the Trump White House are so concerned about this president, they will break protocol and leak sensitive information to the public through the press. We've known since the start of this presidency that the Trump White House leaks like a sieve and that those leaks constitute a national security risk. Leaking the president's schedule, detailing where he'll be at any given moment, including motorcade time, puts him and to some degree the nation at risk. House Democrats, among other things, are investigating casual issuance of security clearances, including the one for son-in-law Jared Kushner, whose security officials said should not be given top-level clearance, and a host of others, including current National Security Advisor John Bolton and former National Security Advisor Mike Flynn, along with Flynn's assistant and his son. Anything in a person's background that could make them subject to blackmail is grounds for rejecting security clearance, and officials thought Jared Kushner should be rejected. And after an FBI background check of Kushner, at least two career White House security specialists recommend he not be given top-secret clearance. And then they were overruled. In the case of John Bolton, he never bothered to report his work with Russian spy Maria Butina. White House staffers are not the only ones blowing a whistle on Trump. After two years of silence, the nation's senior intelligence briefers are leaking to the public frightening tales of a president who resides in a world of willful ignorance, to quote one. American taxpayers spend $81 billion a year on intelligence services that appear to be mostly disregarded by the president. The briefers say that when Trump is present with facts that contradict what he thinks he knows, he turns angry. So angry, at least two intelligence officers say they have been warned not to contradict the president's positions, especially when they know he is wrong. Which, according to his intelligence chiefs, he is. A lot. He's also unfocused. When briefed about a British island strategic to the U.S. military, Trump's response was, Are the people nice? Are the beaches good? Spoken like a true hotel developer. Trump's ignorance, willful or not, is a factor. Trump pointed in one briefing to a map and said he knew that Nepal is part of India. It's not. It's its own country. He said Bhutan was part of India. It's not. Like Nepal, it's an independent nation, and he mispronounced both of them. To get him to understand the massive size of a nuclear missile site in North Korea, they had to build a model with a removable roof and added a custom-to-scale replica of the Statue of Liberty so he would finally understand the size of that facility. He was told that North Korea had sealed the entrances to that facility just for Kim Jong-un's talks with Trump, but that those entrances could be easily reopened. He didn't get it or didn't believe them, so he publicly declared that North Korea had shut down that missile site and was no longer a threat to the United States. Between their own unpleasant encounters with the president and the repeated warnings they get about not contradicting him, former intel officials worry the briefers may just stop telling him the truth. My special report on the dying art of journalism, plus you're using too much toothpaste, the year of the pig, and the boy and the bear in the final segment, up next. Thank you for using my Amazon link at buzzburbank.com for Valentine's Day and all your shopping year-round at home and at work. Your use of that link helps keep this newscast going and free for the listening, so please bookmark it as your everyday shopping button. I get a small commission from Amazon for every purchase you make that way and for every Amazon Prime membership picked up through me, so it really helps power this free weekly report. Just click the Amazon logo at buzzburbank.com. You'll land right on your very own Amazon page and then bookmark that. On your desktop browser, the Amazon logo's in the upper right corner at buzzburbank.com. On your phone, it's just under the title Buzz Burbank News and Comment. If you'd rather not use my Amazon link, then please support this free and independent reporting through the PayPal Donate button. Thank you. Now, if you'll indulge me, some words about my profession and my vocation in this special report on the decline and possible salvation of your free press and journalism. 
American newspapers, which in a few cases are still our best source for news, took their first hit with the arrival of radio, which could report the news faster. Newspapers took a bigger hit from the Great Depression. Over a thousand U.S. cities at one time had at least two competing newspapers. That was just before the stock market crash. By 1944, those cities were down to one paper. And then came television news with that same instant coverage, but pictures that moved and ultimately in color. The newspaper business surged again after World War II, but by 1990 it had suffered more losses and newspapers were gobbled up by other papers and then by other companies. It was the age of conglomeration, followed by the age of the Internet, when most people stopped reading their news in print. Today, only the big papers survive. The rest, shadows of their former selves, smaller paper, smaller and fewer sections, layoffs, and worst of all, less reporting. By 2016, more than 500 daily newspapers had gone out of business, and that's the year they stopped keeping track at the American Society of News Editors. The cutbacks at our most reliable and local and national news organizations have continued. Newsroom jobs have fallen by 23% in the past 10 years. Since 1990, nearly 65% of all newspaper jobs have been cut, nearly two-thirds. Editorial cartoonists are the canaries in this coal mine, and they've been dropping like canaries. Among the layoffs last week by the Gannett newspaper chain, a Pulitzer Prize winning cartoonist. There isn't a single employed editorial cartoonist left in the state of Texas now. A Pulitzer Prize winner in Pittsburgh was fired by the Post-Gazette after the paper refused to print many of his anti-Trump cartoons. USA Today owner Gannett had bought up small local newspapers all over the country. Now Gannett has just cut jobs at its papers in New York, Tennessee, and Indiana after another recent layoff in New Jersey. Previous Gannett layoffs slashed reporting in Ohio, Florida, and Arizona. It can get worse. Strapped for cash, Gannett is getting offers now to sell those papers to Alden Capital, a company known for its risky investments. Alden made a brutal 30% cut at its own Denver Post last year. The job cutting there started four years ago as Alden Capital is suspected of gutting its newsrooms to cover its losing investments, and Alden is the second biggest newspaper chain in the U.S. Ten years ago, the Denver Post had a couple hundred reporters. Today it has 60. If you've stopped hearing about corruption in your local government, you can thank whatever hedge fund now owns your hometown newspaper. And thanks to these cuts, by the time a story gets into print, it isn't news anymore. Papers used to be put to bed in their final form and ready to print by 10 or 11 p.m. Now it's 6 p.m. That means that evening's breaking news, election results, public hearings, and even sports scores won't land on front porches for another day and a half. Digital media did its share of the damage. Facebook and Google scooped up the ad money, leaving traditional journalism fighting for scraps and losing its ethical compass along the way. The arrival of Facebook's news feed was perhaps the biggest blow to journalism ever. But even digital journalism is hurting as Facebook and Google grow stronger. Yahoo News, AOL, BuzzFeed, and the Huffington Post laid off about a thousand people last week, among them each news outlet owned by Verizon Media. Warner Media is shutting down its entire news division. Over at groundbreaking Vice News, co-founder Shane Smith is known as Bullshitter Shane, and his quotes are more crass than his nickname. Smith has reportedly injected himself into the journalism profession just for the advertising money. He lives in a $23 million mansion, while the average Vice salary reporters make $28,000 a year. There is hope on the horizon. You have to pay to read the online versions of the New York Times, the Washington Post, New Yorker magazine, and others, and that business model is succeeding. In Tennessee, Texas, and elsewhere, nonprofit digital newspapers are going online, funded entirely by donors. England's Manchester Guardian, founded in 1821, has become The Guardian, an online nonprofit, and today, two thirds of its readers are outside the UK. Count me among them. The Guardian raised over a million dollars last year, thanks to donations, including my own. ProPublica is also successfully employing 75 investigative journalists on donations. 
and it's happening on a local scale. Maybe it'll happen in your town. Made up of reporters from the crumbling Memphis Commercial Appeal, the Daily Memphian, a nonprofit digital newspaper, has raised nearly $7 million from people willing to pay for quality journalism untouched by advertisers, shareholders, and hedge fund managers. And since the late 60s, there have been on and off attacks on the trustworthiness of the news media, and that's been bad for business as well. Throughout World War II, journalism reported on events without explaining what they mean. As with everyone else, journalists were all about helping the war effort. That go-along-to-get-along posture remained for another 10 years, but the profession reawakened in the mid-1950s when a senator named Joe McCarthy looked for a communist under every bed. After that awakening... It was back to just reporting on government without questioning it. Journalists passed along information they were handed by government officials without questioning that information, without researching or investigating or interpreting. But with the country torn by the Vietnam War in the late 60s, reporters began to ask questions again, and their editorial boards came out against that war. Journalism had come off the bench to serve its function as a spotlight on government and to hold government to account. Those who supported the war and then-President Nixon called those papers communist rags. Nixon aide Pat Buchanan said it would be, quote, good politics for us to kick the press around. Nixon's Vice President Spiro Agnew gladly took up the cause, saying the press represents a concentration of power over American public opinion unknown in history. He called reporters the nattering nabobs of negativity. Like-minded voters seized upon Agnew's attack, and it stuck. Reporters won the battle, chasing Agnew from office with reports on his tax evasion and survived with permanent scars from Agnew's attack in that those attacks would resurface and would get worse. Still in high gear, the Washington Post reported on third-rate burglary that brought down Agnew and Nixon in that order. But as Jill Lepore at the New Yorker magazine writes, the ghost of Agnew is winning the war on journalism with the help of Donald Trump fueled by the likes of Drudge, Breitbart, and his TV friends at the so-called Fox News Channel. Bumper stickers across America read, Boycott Mainstream Media. The failing New York Times, says Trump. CNN is fake news, he said. These are exact quotes, as is his reference to the press as the true enemy of the people. Just as the journalism profession had with Joe McCarthy and Spiro Agnew and Richard Nixon, it has come off the bench to question, investigate, report, and analyze the words and deeds of our 45th president. But this time, it's done so under extreme fire. Have we already forgotten the pipe bombs sent to CNN or the death of Jamal Khashoggi? Other journalists killed in the line of duty are barely mentioned, and there are others. After defending the Saudi government in the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, Trump went to a rally at which he defended a local congressman who had physically assaulted a reporter. Trump was saying it was okay to beat up the enemy of the people, also known as the spotlight that holds government, and especially his type, to account. Trump has talked about jailing his enemies. His current Attorney General nominee, William Barr, says Trump has the presidential authority to jail reporters he feels have hurt the country. As a last resort, Barr said at his Senate confirmation hearing. The free press was so important to our founding fathers, they wrote it into the First Amendment of the Constitution, and that free press is now on the line. I'm sounding an alarm for the people who sound the alarms. Your need to know, your right to know, are on the line. Only you and professional journalists can save it. Now your climate update. NASA says Earth's average surface temperature in 2018 was the fourth highest in 140 years of records and evidence the planet keeps getting warmer. A NASA scientist at the Goddard Institute for Space Studies says global warming is here, now. The past five years have been the warmest five years on record. Our 18 warmest years have been within the past 19 years. And scientists have drawn a direct correlation between the increase in warming and the increased use of fossil fuels over those years. They believe we will not meet the goals set by the Paris Climate Accord. The world, emphasized the scientist, is not about to fall off a cliff. They say it'll be more of a gradual slide that's already begun. The oceans, meanwhile, appear to be rising faster and sooner than we expected, more so than reported previously. 
there's a big hole under a glacier in the Antarctic we didn't know about, and that means that glacier will melt much sooner than it appeared. The more surface area on an ice cube in warmer water, the faster the ice cube will melt. This glacier's hole is the size of Manhattan and about a thousand feet tall, and it's growing under a glacier in western Antarctica. The hole was once filled with bedrock, and although the rock's still there and it's still the same size, the hole around it and above it got bigger. This could also help melt two other glaciers nearby, and if all three of them go, sea levels could rise. Eight feet. Now, the only people who will notice live in Washington, Oregon, California, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, Maryland, New Jersey, Delaware, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, New York, Connecticut, New Hampshire, and Maine. The best and biggest news on the climate front, however, is that House Democrats yesterday staged the first hearing in nine years, two hearings, actually, on the climate crisis. Congress, a new Democratic Congress, is finally paying attention to this crisis. We'll take whatever good news we can get. The World Wildlife Fund reports from Mexico that the monarch butterfly population is up 144% over last year. The numbers reached an historic and frightening low just five years ago. There is still concern about the ones that migrate from Canada and the U.S., but the monarch's numbers are up in a good way, south of the border. You want to help? Plant milkweed, where monarchs love to eat and to lay their eggs. When Trump's first government shutdown forced park rangers to abandon Drake's Beach at Point Reyes National Seashore in California, they found more than a backlog of emails when they returned to work more than a month later. They found a herd of elephant seals had come ashore, about 90 of them, overtaking the part of the beach set aside for humans to sun and swim. It would have been hard just to relocate them since each adult weighs more than your car, maybe more than your truck. And many of the seals are either pregnant or they are newborn pups. They used to go elsewhere, but their old habitat's been destroyed by brutal storms. Park rangers used to chase them away with blue tarps, but for now at least it's too late. So Drake's Beach is now closed to humans as the seals enjoy one of the best views of the California coastline. Your kid is using too much toothpaste, and so are you. So much toothpaste, it's not healthy, says the Centers for Disease Control. Children under three, just a smear. No more toothpaste than the size of a single grain of rice. Toddlers three to six who brush their own teeth should be using a glob of toothpaste no bigger than a single green pea. The CDC found that most kids three to 15 use half or a full brush of paste. Dentists, their professional association, and now the CDC say too much toothpaste can damage the enamel and cause children to swallow too much fluoride, which can turn their teeth gray. A young man left a vape store in Fort Worth, Texas, sat down in his car, put the pen to his lips, and it exploded, firing shrapnel into his face. One piece of metal flew into his mouth, straight through into his neck. Another severed his carotid artery, and it took him two days to die ultimately from a stroke he had suffered while getting out of bed. His grandmother says William Brown was a caring 25-year-old who was also an organ donor. Somebody, she says, will get a good heart. You may recall from a month ago a story here about young Joshua, a middle school boy in Wilmington, Delaware, who changed his school and his last name to stop the bullying. The 11-year-old had been called stupid and an idiot by his classmates because his last name at the time was Trump. He's known at his new school as Joshua Berto, but the president invited him to the State of the Union speech this week, and the little boy sat next to the little girl who had beaten cancer. Update on that. Joshua was photographed sleeping during Trump's speech, prompting delighted Democrats to tweet, Welcome to the resistance, Joshua. The red carpet opening in New York for Liam Neeson's new movie has been canceled after he admitted on the promotional tour that he'd once looked for opportunity to kill any black man after hearing that a friend had been raped. Neeson says he's glad he didn't and that he is now ashamed of that impulse, but the damage appears to have been done. Neeson's revelation came in the same week as two of Virginia's top Democrats, the governor and the attorney general, were each dealing with their own racial controversies. So long, family. 
This fall will bring us the 11th and final season of the once groundbreaking family sitcom, Modern Family. It's been a cash cow for ABC Disney, winning Emmys for Best Comedy four years running. Series 11 could be a full or partial season as the writers wrap up an iconic TV comedy. There have been plenty of good seats available in movie theaters in one of Hollywood's quietest weeks of the year. Those who went mostly saw the Sam Jackson Bruce Willis thriller Glass, number one again for a third straight week. Preview showtimes and tickets are yours by clicking the Fandango logo at buzzburbank.com. Hair Live is dead. If you've been looking forward to NBC's live presentation of the 1967 musical Hair, you've just been cut down. The network says it has now canceled the show with no plans to reschedule it. A network executive says, we need titles that have a wide appeal. The show would have also aired the same night as the finales of American Idol and Game of Thrones. Fox, which has also been airing live musicals, had bad luck when one of the actors in Rent broke, not his leg, but his foot, forcing the network to use video from a dress rehearsal, making its show less live. Crime Stoppers notes, in Greensboro, a University of North Carolina student stopped by her off-campus apartment Saturday to grab some lunch. She heard a noise coming from her closet. She opened the door and found a stranger, 30-year-old Andrew Clyde Swafford, sitting on the floor, wearing some of her clothes, and holding a bag that contained more of her clothes. Police say she texted her boyfriend first, sending him photos of this smartly dressed man in her closet. The boyfriend then called police, who arrested Swafford on breaking and entering charges. In Fall River, Mass., police are looking for a woman who was dressed like a bank robber, who walked into the Municipal Credit Union Monday afternoon and approached a teller window. Speechless at first, she bequeathed the teller, give me a minute. She then went to one of those counter islands to write on a piece of paper. Then she tore up the note she'd written and dropped the pieces into a wastebasket and left. Bank employees pieced the note together, which read, Give me the money. Fall River police have released a photo of the woman in her black high-color coat, her black ski cap, and her big dark sunglasses, saying that anyone who recognizes her should give them a call. A 19-year-old in Arkansas who wanted to get to a concert decided to steal a 44-seat jet from American Eagle to get there. Police found the young man in the cockpit, overwhelmed by all the buttons and levers, since young Zamarcuus Scott of Texarkana is not a pilot. He's now pleaded guilty after being found mentally competent to stand trial, albeit incompetent at flying jets. And a man who jumped into a locked enclosure will spend the next year in a locked enclosure. Brandon Keith Hatfield of beautiful St. Augustine, Florida, jumped into the crocodile exhibit at a local alligator farm and zoological park. 23-year-old Brandon Hatfield jumped into the Nile exhibit enclosure where security video captured one of the crocs biting his leg. The croc wranglers say the damage was over $5,000 with the blood stains and other havoc caused by Brandon whose clothing was shredded and left behind. It was the next day when a nearby resident saw a bloody Brandon crawling across a neighbor's yard in his underwear that police were notified. Brandon is now recovering and faces a year in a different kind of enclosure. But walls and barriers and bars that separate us cannot stop love. Zoologists in Switzerland ran a DNA test on a newborn orangutan and were shocked to learn that the father is not the male in the mother's cage. They were even more shocked to learn the father of the newborn was the male in the adjacent cage. Year of the pig indeed. According to the Chinese Zodiac, it is the year of the pig, as if they don't have all the luck already. Luck is one of several characteristics assigned to those born under that sign. But they don't feel very lucky in Hong Kong, where the place is overrun by pigs, wild boars that have multiplied as quickly as humans have moved into their habitats. Boars are everywhere in Hong Kong now, on roads, in parks, and housing developments, and shopping centers, and they don't seem to be afraid of people anymore. And while the people of Hong Kong debate whether to sterilize the wild pigs or declare open season, they have also decorated their city for the Lunar New Year, which began two years ago. Decorated their surroundings with pigs for the Year of the Pig. 
For many, it's not just a nightmare, it's a phobia. In Queensland, Australia, a woman says she felt something bite her bottom as she was sitting on the toilet in the dark. She says she jumped up midstream to turn on the light, which wasn't easy. When you've got your knickers around your ankles, she told Channel 10, it's hard to go anywhere. But she turned on that light and grabbed her cell phone to get a picture of the snake in the toilet that had just bitten her bum. She then quickly closed the lid and weighted it down with pots and pans from the kitchen. She was treated with antiseptic spray. Well, look what the cat dragged in. In Cardiff, Wales, a family cat brought home a big, fluffy, white hamster. The hamster was completely uninjured. Police are now looking for the escaped hamster's owner and have asked the cat not to leave town. The Guinness Book of World Records, by the way, has just dubbed this cat the longest anywhere on the planet at nearly four feet long. The owners say they knew when he was two that their Maine Coon cat would land in the record books. He's now four and prefers to go for walks while comfortably seated in a baby stroller. And finally, you may remember, as the polar vortex was moving in, a three-year-old boy went missing in North Carolina and was found cold and wet but alive and safe after two nights alone in the woods. Helicopters, drones, dogs, divers, and volunteers could not find little Casey and had to call off the search in the wind and the rain. But after his rescue, his eventual rescue, little Casey told his aunt what he had told the sheriff, that he had a friend with him in the woods. It was, he said, a bear. His friend the bear was with him, he said. Maybe there was a bear. Maybe there wasn't. Let's say there was. Real or imagined, a bear took care of that boy. Uh, but before we go soft on bears, let us remind ourselves of the security video from Reno, Nevada this week that reveals that a porch pirate who stole packages from a front porch was a bear. But maybe it was for a boy in the woods. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and for supporting this free news at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank News and Comments. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.